0: Eight, twenty-nine, forty-two. 29, 42. You know,
1: I can't count that high. you got to stop that, Doc. It's just not nice. All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to dive into the episode. And if you notice, Doc, I almost said sweatshop because it's so dang hot with my broken AC, but... Well, I restrained myself, barely. That's
0: why you don't live in the boonies.
1: Well, I mean, I I survived a year in a desert. Well, actually two. And I don't know how I did it at this point because I'm such a a shrinking violet now when it comes to the heat.
0: I survived the first eight years of my life in a desert.
1: Yes, but I did it wearing body armor, so I win.
0: (laughs) I did it with my mom locking me out of the house.
1: Okay, maybe we'll call it a tie then. I knew I liked your mom for a reason. All right. Somebody's got to All right. So uh, before we get started, John, uh, Mr. John Babb, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Uh,
2: Not much to tell. I'm a pharmacist uh, by training. Uh, Did emergency response, worked for the Surgeon General for a number of years, emergency planning and deployments, that sort of thing.
1: All right, so you played with I'm the good sure. drugs. So Pardon he's so me?
0: casual about what is actually to me a really cool job.
1: He played with the good drugs. That's what he's telling you people. So if you want to, t- your characters to get high, you reach out to him. He'll tell you how to do it, theoretically.
2: Some, some of my pharmacist time was spent in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, but I got to go home every night. Yeah, that's probably the better end of the deal. In fact, some of my characters. Uh, come from those days. I believe it.
1: All right. When I say bad guys, they really were bad guys. All right, so the next part of the introduction to your listener, if you've been here before, you know the drill is how we first found them. So I actually found John when he reached out to me because he had heard that I'd interviewed William before and asked, "Hey, can we come on the show to talk about the series I'm writing in that universe?" Um, and so I said, "Yes, but Doc, I suspect you knew him because you seem to know all the authors. Uh, in the world. No,
0: nope. I actually this is the first time I've met John, and I'm really excited to because you know you can,
1: you can nerd you out can, on like chemicals
0: right? as much as I do.
1: Fine, fine. From a purely
0: interesting point of view, not a not a weird one, Jr.
1: I wasn't going to go there, but so uh, I just figured you knew all the authors because I was at the bookstore at the youngest because he wanted to get his more picture books. He calls it Monger or something weird, whatever. Thank he wanted, his, he wanted his picture books. And so while he's looking, I was looking at the fantasy sci-fi section of Barnes & Noble. You can hear him downstairs screaming, it's not a picture book. I was at the uh, sci-fi and fantasy side. I'm like, I met him. I met him. I met her. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, Doc probably knows more of the ones that I didn't. So I just, I don't know. It was a I weird mean, world. I will not
0: of- deny the truth. It's it's really fun when you work at Barnes & Noble and you're, you get to shelve books. And you're like, oh, cool. I know this person's book. And then uh, there was more than one time when I, I texted somebody and going, you didn't tell me your book was out. It doesn't release for a week. How do you have it already? <laughs> I'm like, I don't technically have it. My work has it.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. The next part of the introduction is we have a returning guest. But if you didn't listen to episode 34, what are you doing with your life? Hit pause. Go back and listen to it and then come back. But no, you
0: know, don't tell them to go away. We're going well, to no, they go to really a different episode together. and then come back.
1: So they would still be listening to our episode. You are relying
0: too much on people who may be ADD. Fair point.
1: Fair point. They all right. Could, listen they to they this listen and and they, go afterwards. Afterwards. Right, they can circle back afterwards. Right. They can circle back afterwards. Got it. But uh, William, Mr. William Webb, can you
3: introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? You know, if you tell them to go away and they know I'm on the show, they may not come back. Um, yes, I am William Allen Webb. I uh, write science fiction, fantasy, and all that kind of good stuff. And I also like military history. The good stuff.
1: So uh, the next part of the introduction, dear listener, as we've done this before, is how we first found them. And uh, William and I were in a story bundle together uh, back in the beginning of the 2021. And so we interviewed him and everyone else in the story bundle. 14 interviews in seven days. I was going insane, but we got it all done. And William, I think there was a, there was a pandemic
0: going on, so you weren't doing anything else.
1: This is true. I mean, you know, I could have been staring out my window or going for a walk. Not much changed for us here in, uh, in Tidewater. But, uh, but yeah, so we were in a story bundle together, and that's how we first met. And I knew we'd have him back because he was a lot of fun. But Doc, are you going to tell me you didn't meet him at a bar too? Because you meet everyone at the bar.
0: I did not meet him at a bar,
1: but drinking was involved. Okay, you get a redemption there. Okay.
0: Because Marisa was telling me about him, and she and I were drinking. Does that count?
1: Drinking by proxy? Yes, we'll accept.
0: No, no, no. We were actively drinking, but I met them by proxy through Marisa.
3: Right, but you
1: alcohol was still involved, so it counts.
0: Well, of course, it was Marisa.
3: Were you at Liberty Con last year? Uh, last one?
0: I'm always at Liberty Con. Well, I, see, we, I, met I with Liberty Con.
1: we met there. We met there.
0: Probably. I just sometimes meet people three or four times, like,
1: before but I She was, she was in, in her defense, William,
3: she was probably also three sheets to the wind. Well, now, I'm, I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> it
0: depends but on it, where I was. It if was I wasn't in the, the con bar, suite. I'm sober.
3: It was in the con suite.
0: Yeah, the, the the con suite you see a bunch of faces and you're and I'm checking a bunch of people's IDs and
3: yeah. and then
0: sometimes when people are in cosplay- tombs they don't really match their IDs.
3: Yeah. Well she checked mine and I wasn't in costume. So all
1: right. Yeah, I
0: met him serving bar. Yeah.
1: Okay. So doc we're gonna ask them the religion question so we decide if they get to stay, but when you ask for the first one. We get to see if they know what they all have in common. These were specifically curated for these two authors. Oh,
0: Jr. likes to think he's smart. Sometimes he's too smart for his own good. So
1: you know, I our, had a sergeant once or twice tell me that.
0: Yeah, they weren't wrong. So our sci-fi religion: Total Recall, Blade Runner, Minority Report.
1: Tell who you're asking first. Who you uh, asking? Who are you asking first?
0: Whichever one wants to answer first.
1: Oh, I want John. Okay. Uh,
2: I got to go with total recall. Um, you know, part of the story has to do with not really knowing whether what you remember is real or it's imagined. And I think I, for, for instance, have that same <laughs> problem sometimes. I'll I'll have a thought and... Wonder was that from a real real experience or did I dream that or what? Plus, I don't like Tom Cruise, and the idea of him playing in his the character in his newest movie uh, is repellent to me.
1: Fair. So, so with with the uh, with the memories, Tom
0: Cruise is kind of like he's a gnome.
1: Yes. He Do you
0: him. not like gnomes?
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, so the other part of that is you have memories. People tell you stuff that happened to you that you might not remember. And then, then you think you remember because you've heard the story so many times. Right. Right. All right. Now, William,
3: hmm. what about you? Oh, I'm a Blade Runner guy.
1: And do you know what all three of those had in common? No. They were all short stories written by Philip K.
3: Dick that were turned into movies. Oh, of course. I mean, I you know, I did... I, somewhere in the back of my mind i knew that but i thought you were talking about the movies and i was trying to think same director no nah, no nah. so yeah
1: i um wouldn't know who directed it i'm lucky if i know who the stars are we're my lucky theory, know
0: what the movies are
1: yeah my theory has always been if the actor is so bad at their job that i don't think of them as the character i think of them as them then they messed up anyway and it probably wasn't a good movie yeah <laughs> but i also don't watch a lot of tv i read books and watch documentaries because I'm cool like that.
0: Mel made me watch Free Guy, and that was actually really good.
1: Mel makes you do a lot of things. She's good influence on time.
0: Sure, we'll go with that.
1: <laughs> All right, the okay. next one, back.
0: So our next one, and we're going to go with Bill first. Pirates of the Caribbean, The Golden Compass, or Journey to the Center of the Earth.
3: Oh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Absolutely. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean's fine. You know, I don't have a problem with Johnny Depp. Um, I have a, I'm not sure how much I love movies based on Disney rides, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, if you're gonna do it, that one was pretty good. Uh, but I mean, Jules Verne, it, it's and, and and then again, I also grew up with *Pellucidar*.
0: Okay. And,
3: which, if and, and you guys probably know, that was Edgar Rice Burroughs's version of that where you go into the earth at the earth core and all that kind of stuff so i just i like hollow earth kind of stories
0: uh I, I there is that. a really neat rpg out there that i know somebody working on you'll love because that's kind of the concept uh subterranean subterranean we interviewed jay parker about it i'll send you the link
1: okay he really he,
0: it because that's kind of the entire concept behind it and he's working on it with flint Dilly
1: and um they have a darpa has got a darpa one of the x prizes trying to develop ways to actually live underground and in subterranean uh environments no. I, I think darpa is trying to develop everything this is probably also true
0: DARPA, derpa
1: yes derpa,
0: right. i'm sorry I think, buddy i have a bad sense of humor um
1: it's part of your charm
0: sure we'll go with that so as you guys know, we love both science and fantastical fantasies, but which was your first love, John? Sci-fi or fantasy?
2: Uh, it's got to be science
1: <laughs> plus,
2: plus a little fi thrown in. But if it's not believable, it's, not, it's it doesn't meet the bar for me. So this is what I write about. I write stuff that's true Sit in a situation that has to be believable or I'm I'm not gonna write it.
0: I can understand that. I, I have found that if I spend most of my time correcting their science and I don't really mm-hmm. I don't enjoy the story.
2: Right, you better you better write your science correctly because there's a whole lot of people out there that will tell you how wrong you are on point x and y
0: well you know with the internet now all it takes is a good five minutes to become an actual scientific expert right
2: that's uh, true dr google yeah
0: there is a liquor store near my house that has a sign last year around the chris uh they've done it several years now but at graduation time congratulations thank google Well, how about you, Webb?
3: You know, I'm I'm an old school fantasy guy, and and I say that I mean I grew up with Heinlein and the juveniles and all that. But um, when my mom told me that I was forbidden to read Lord of the Rings, <laughs> because
1: what was trying uh, to do
0: force you to read it.
3: No, no, I was reading it. She told me I was forbidden to do it, and because her friend of hers told her that Tolkien was a communist. And uh, so she freaked out, you know, and of course, he was a conservative Catholic. But uh, she yeah. uh, she forbade me to do it. So I said, well, OK, I know what I'm going to do now. <laughs> and I read it 32 times before I got to college, uh, you know, had it memorized. So um, he, that was a gateway to all the, all the really hard stuff. Robert E. Howard. Uh, Michael Moorcock, all all that. And, that is uh, fair. Yeah. So, um, but but it was the Hobbit that that ruined my life, so to speak. Otherwise, I would have probably done something useful.
0: You know what? I find good books to be useful. So.
3: It, it's it's like Heinlein said uh, after he sold uh, his first story why didn't somebody tell me this, about this before? It, it's a lot better than working.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so what was your first memory in engaging in speculative fiction as a genre? We'll start with Bill and switch to John that way.
3: My first what?
0: What was your first memory engaging with this uh, speculative fiction, whether it be science fiction or fantasy?
3: Um, the first thing that, I don't actually remember reading um, Lord of the Rings when I was probably 13 or so. Um, but I do remember sometime around then reading my first Conan story. And I don't remember which one it was. I just remember to my 13-year-old mind, it had this big guy with his bloody sword and all these you know, good-looking girls around him. And I thought, okay, this this really seems like it's cut out for me.
1: I mean, I could definitely appreciate that.
3: Yeah. And, uh, you know, Howard wrote for, um, uh, for, he wrote for 14-year-old boys. I mean, he just did. That's that's who was buying the pulps that were paying him, you know, 14 to 20-year-old boys and then older men. And so, uh, he and, and it really just spoke to me. Um, I think he's an underappreciated genius. I can agree with that.
0: How about you, John? What was your first memory engaging in speculative fiction, whether it be fantasy or science? Uh,
2: 1984, uh, Brave New World, uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Love the Bomb.
1: Excellent movie.
2: And they had um, enough truth in them, despite being fiction, that that's that's what kept me in the book.
3: That is awesome. I, I want to throw out one more since John was mentioning those movies. Uh, a, a, move, a movie that's kind of now forgotten in a book that was just superb was uh, "On the Beach." Yeah, by Neville Shute. And okay, that,
0: to me that's just a drink.
3: It's a uh, it, it's a post apocalyptic novel written in the fifties uh, about uh, the survivors of a uh, nuclear war. Okay. And. Uh, Very low-key, great movie, great acting, really, really, really good stuff.
0: That sounds really neat. Uh, I will have to check it out because I like watching some of those older movies, particularly that's uh, something my dad and I do over the holidays together.
3: It's it's truly a classic.
0: Um, So what is it that you love about speculative fiction as a genre? John, or should I let Bill go first so you have time to think?
2: Uh, For me, it's it. Although it's fiction, as I've said previously, as long as I can draw parallels to something that's true, then I'm fine. And for example, Bill's got this fantastic series of five books the last brigade universe and I'm talking over his stuff here but it's all true except for one premise and if you can get past that one premise then it's true it's it's a beautiful piece of work
3: don't don't look at me and expect me to you know contradict him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Um, Bill, what's your favorite thing about the genre of speculative fiction?
3: You know, the hard part is narrowing it down to one thing. Um, it's just such an all encompassing thing that I truly think that man, men, man, women, I mean, mankind is born to entertain each other with stories. And there's an example in a book I'm writing now. I'm, I'm it's a nonfiction book. I'm doing it with Chris Kennedy. And one of the things I begin with is uh, the oldest known cave paintings in the world that uh, appear to use uh, fa- what we would consider fantasy creatures are from 41,000 BC. And I like to think that that person, whoever they were, was entertaining their friends with stories painted on, on a wall. And it's just that, that whole freedom of anything you can make believable and entertain and, and thrill or scare or whatever your point is, uh, other people, uh, is is just, there's something magical about it. And I don't mean magic in the fantasy sense, in the engagement sense. Uh, real quick, the 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 most exciting thing I've ever done as far as storytelling is I used to go to a summer camp and it was a three week session when I was 17. My last year I had, I'd read Lord of the Rings so many times that every night around the campfire, I would relate part of the books to everybody else from memory. And you know, you can't tell every word and all that, but Um, and and after about a week, it it was, come on, come on, let's go. We want to hear it. Come on, let's go. We want to hear the next part. And so you had all these 13 to 16 year old guys who normally wouldn't care about this kind of stuff, bugging me to get around the campfire and tell them the story. And, uh, I realized, I think that's probably the first time I realized the power of storytelling. And, And that's what I'm really in love with.
1: Okay that's a good answer (laughs) we we clearly need more uh more campfires in our lives we do um most of my campfire experiences you would have thought we were stoners the way we were waxing about nonsense trying to sound philosophical
3: Um, you probably don't want want one right now
1: no (laughs) no i'm fine but it's okay we'll overcome all right
0: inside the camp
1: yes uh, so, how did your love of spec- Right now, yes, I am. So, how did your love of speculative fiction transition into you writing stories in this space? And we'll start with you, John.
2: Well, one of my jobs uh, when I worked for the Surgeon General was to uh, talk about and train other people as to what might happen if, if such and such could should occur. And one of my favorite stories is when I went to a meeting of managers of the food and drug administration and told them and I got up front there and I said I'm going to tell you a scenario well about half the audience didn't hear that first sentence and so then I launched into this tale about what was going on in New Mexico with dairy cattle and how they had uh, that uh, terrorists had come in there and, and damaged the milk, uh, and within about fifteen minutes, everybody in the audience was hitting their their uh, cell phones, calling people in New Mexico to find out what the heck's going down down there. Why didn't we know about it, etc. And it can, if you tell it the right way, it can be pretty compelling. So that's what I did a lot, Uh, not just that one story, but Sowing Chaos is full of about 40 different kinds of attacks on America. Uh, Not not, uh, huge attacks at all at one time, except for the very last one. But over time, they built up and really tore the country down. And most of them came from what I did 10 years ago at work.
1: Okay.
0: See, that's I told you that's probably the coolest job we've had on here.
1: All right, what about you, William? How did you go from reading and loving the speculative fiction space to deciding you would be a teller of tales?
3: I I think, um, you know, it's really hard to remember. I was in my teens and like most people do, Uh, I didn't have fanfic back then to get started. So I had to just write things. And I'm sure they were very derivative and that kind of stuff. Um, And when I got to college, I wanted to continue that. And so that's I majored in creative writing. Uh, But again, I think it just goes back to that experience of, a lot like John, I realized what happens when you tell a story and you're really entertaining about it, that people just really enjoy it. And, you know, I got to tell you what, one of my favorite rock and roll singers describes himself this way, and I think it applies to most writers. He says, he's just an insecure little (laughs) show-off. And I think think that applies to me, you know? Uh, I just, I like people to to read the stories and enjoy them. And it makes me feel good. And I'm sure it inflates my ego more than it should. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it's all about that satisfaction of telling a story that people like. And it's, it's kind of addictive. You know, it, it really is. Um, there's just something appealing about it. And I think when I was a teenager, I probably thought it would be, make me you know, more attractive to girls. It didn't work. But, <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. And uh, so it was, you know, and by the time I figured it out, uh, I think I was probably married by then and it didn't matter anymore.
0: Well, JR used to read romance novels because he thought for some reason it would not make him understand girls.
1: Newsflash, it does not um
0: that's not newsflash for anybody else other than you
1: you hush your mouth this is why your mother likes me better yes, all it right is why many, my mother likes you better many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell so were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller john
2: well i went to work at the Surgeon general's office about a year before 9-11 and about six weeks after that we had the anthrax letters followed by any number of disasters and threats and you name it and so living through those things and seeing people do fantastic things in the field uh, risking their lives in some cases by uh, going to africa for the ebola outbreak uh, five years ago that's, those are stories that need to be told. And
1: it's a great pleasure to tell. Absolutely. So what about you, William? Were there any formidable moments um, that mm-hmm. shaped the way you tell stories?
3: Um, the, way I, the way I tell stories, it, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, yes, I think there was. Um, it actually happened fairly recently when when i was in college i was taught like i would say most people who take creative writing in college are that what matters most is the prose itself sentence structure imagery the the type of wording you use that kind of thing story and narrative were secondary now i was told if you turn in a fantasy story uh you know i mean i'm going to give you an f and so we were very restricted on what we were allowed to write, which looking back on it should never have been the point. It should have been um, how to write a story, not what to write. And so I quit writing. I quit writing fiction for a long time until 2014 when I wrote um, the, the, my first published novel and said, yeah, I really don't care what anybody thinks anymore. I'm just going to tell it the way I want to tell it.
0: You're muted, dear.
3: Yeah, I think my wife got home.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'll let John talk to you for a minute. And I'll be back.
1: So right, that, that's fair. The next set of questions are for John, anyway. Um, so well, we ask all of the people that come on this show who also served in uniform these questions. But your bio mentioned that you retired. Uh, from the U.S. Public Health Service's Rear Admiral. So we ask all of our veterans this question, but how do you feel like your time in uniform affects the stories you tell?
2: Well, every book I've written has had a medical component to it. Sometimes it's been, uh, well, in the case of uh, the first book I wrote, it was about my great-grandfather who ran away from home in uh, 1849 and went to the California gold fields. So the medical component of that story was based on the practice of medicine in the 1840s in what's basically a pioneer setting. Uh, These two new books, Sowing Chaos and Unleashing Chaos, uh, are certainly medical uh, with all kinds of threats thrown in. So... I feel like what I've done all my life is being told in these books. I mentioned earlier about uh, the characters at the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, one of my bad guys in an upcoming book is a guy that was known as uh, Duck Man. Duck Man went. Winter- The prison where I worked, the the inmates fed wild ducks bread after meals. And so the ducks would just come in there by the hundreds. The duck man would put a duck inside his coat and carry it around all the time. And one day he decided he was going to bring it to the pharmacy and push it through the window and... I heard about it, thank goodness, ahead of time, but there were about 20 inmates that came in there looking to see what I was going to do with a wild duck running around inside my pharmacy. Well, I told duck man, I said, if you put the duck in here, I'm going to close the blinds on the window, and I'm going to ring the duck's neck so he left with the duck. But Duckman was a very violent kind of guy, uh, if left to his own devices. So his personality came
1: out in, in this upcoming book. Okay. that's That's deeper than I thought it would go, but we'll take I, it.
0: I feel bad for the duck.
1: <laughs> well, they saved the duck, so. The duck
0: so- <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could have been much worse, but
3: yeah.
1: So do you ever, well, you actually answered, you do draw on the people you knew. Do you just draw on the inmates or do you draw on some of the oh, other? Um, I, I have all kinds of heroes
2: in my stories that I also worked with. In fact, my primary hero in these two books is a nurse officer from the public health service. She was also in the army in public health service Uh, academia and now she's a volunteer. She's deployed 49 times, either in uniform or as a volunteer. Um, So she's a hero and I'm happy to tell her story.
1: Wow. That's a lot of deployment times. Yeah. so
2: They're not not six-month deployments generally. They're weeks, but still. 49.
0: it's still a lot to just drop your life and go off and do something and then come back yes.
1: family. So we've talked a little bit about how your time in uniform affects the stories you, as you tell them, but do you feel like it affects how you engage with um, content as a reader, as a consumer? Well, I read a
2: lot. I read, uh, <laughs> I read 30 or 40 books a year. Uh, and I usually read the kinds of things that appeal to me and my background
1: and my education and my experience. Okay. So, so we'll take that as a yes. So the last question. So I, I noticed it said you retired as a rear admiral and i know the us health service is considered a uniform service but is it considered military? it is not. okay.
2: and that is a bone contention.
1: <laughs> the
2: us public health service was created uh, by john adams. wow. So, cool. yeah, that's how old it is. it's one of the oldest services, but it has always been a, a more or less a domestic service, although that we deploy internationally. Frequently and have been deployed in wartime. uh, We're not generally
1: armed. Okay. Well, I I just know when I see you guys, I see some of the Surgeon General types on the news, it looks like they're wearing Navy uniforms. So it's always a little confused on how that all works. Yeah, it's a sea service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I worked with a captain who had been in the uniformed health service and then um, not really sure how she ended up in the Army army, but she was a preventive, not preventive medicine, but she did um, prevent, pre, she wasn't an MD, but she did stuff with preventive medicine. And so like, she was interesting. Captain Ortiz was a very interesting woman. So, but that was the first time that I'd ever heard of it really, I think was when I was in the army. So she loved it. She, she left uh, active duty and went back to the uniform health service, but I think she wanted to be in the army for a while. So,
2: lots of, lots of people are moving back and forth from one service to another. I know people have been in three different services by the time they retire.
0: Yeah, she said that it was one of the few services where you can switch between different branches pretty flu- flu- well, fluently. so it's uh, like nobody but, wants a Marine after they're done being a green. <laughs>
2: every service is going to need somebody in preventive medicine, whether they're armed or not. So, yeah.
0: So transitioning from some of the writing stuff into things from a more fan angle, have either of you had any cool fan art or somebody cosplay a character?
3: Why? Well, uh, one of the coolest things that ever happened was... Uh, Hit World is my creation, and uh, Marie—that's one of the books, Marisa and I are writing together. And uh, so, there's my co-creator Larry Hoy, was at Fantasy this year, and sent me a photo on Facebook, and it's of a badge from um, Hit World, where our shooters, our our hitmen. but Hit World is about—a um, world where. Think of it as John Wick, only he's got a license to do what he does. And everything is regulated by the government. All assass- uh, assassinations and hits come through the government so they get their their, their share. And, uh, you know, there's magic and all that. But you have to have a license to do it, you, to be a shooter, and you have a badge that goes along with it. And at Fantasy this year, somebody was cosplaying that badge. And... I was stunned and then they sent me one, I've got badge number one. And so I just thought that is so freaking cool. And now we've had a bunch of other fans um, order their badges and we're keeping up with who has what number and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: That sounds very cool and also very organized.
3: Yeah, which is why I'm not in charge.
0: <laughs> How about you, John?
2: Uh no, nobody wants to
3: copy
0: me. <laughs> you never no. know. I've seen some people caraz playing coronavirus, maybe.
3: John John's too modest to tell you. He has another series that he created. That um and, and yeah, we're here we're talking about Sowing sewing chaos and unleashing chaos. But he has a series about a uh, young lady who is a—is uh, she Creole, John?
2: Creole.
3: She's Creole, and uh, she has an amulet that allows her to talk to the dead.
0: And he's so he's going to be coming on in a couple in like a month or two to talk about that one, right, John?
1: Uh, so,
2: that would be great, but uh, that, we'll just that's just three you under the book. bus. It's not a new book; it's been out a couple. Doesn't, of need, years. To a okay. of Doesn't need to
0: be a new book. There's two of them. need to be.
3: There's two. Good. Okay.
0: Then go write the third, and we'll do do it when the third comes up. There you go. See, look. I'm not bossy. I swear.
3: So he
1: <laughs> lies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not a director. I'm a dictator. Get it straight. No.
3: <laughs> but a benevolent one. I try. <laughs> so,
0: has anyone asked you for your autograph out in public? or. Like all the time
2: all the time at the bank.
0: Huh.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask if you mean outside of cops, but
0: uh Well, you know, ideally outside of cops, but
1: he just likes to make donations to the police benevolent association one citation at a time.
3: It's true. Uh not not in my case, they have not, no. Um, which is fine. You know, I'm not a if that ever happened, I would probably question, you know, their sanity or taste. Fair Although, enough. Although, I can tell you a, a, a story about being mistaken for someone and how I got a free meal. Okay. So, when I was younger, I looked I looked a lot like Donald Sutherland. Okay. And we were eating at a restaurant in Nashville once, and uh, the waitress came over, and you could just tell she thought I was... Donald, Donald Sutherland, and finally, I just look at her and I go, no, 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 it happens all the time, I'm his oldest son, I'm, I'm you know, Kiefer's older brother, uh, and I'm not an actor or anything, you know, I just look like the family, so I got, the manager comp me a free meal, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I told him, I I said, I'm, I'm just kidding, really, you know, but, but they gave me the meal anyway, just because it was a good story.
1: And I'm sure they'll tell all the people that came in that they ate there, whether they did or not at this point. Oh, sure. Of course. You yeah. <laughs> know. So and we loved our pie.
0: Well, I mean, who doesn't love pie?
1: This is true. So, so talk, wait, wait, this is you, Doc. Are we talking about the medical number or are you talking about the actual edible pie? Oh, you're talking about the booze. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was thinking.
3: By ask John, I'm going to go the next question. I'm going to go duct tape a uh, a Labrador's mouth.
1: (laughs) Normally, it's Elvis. We totally understand here. We're dog friendly.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um. So, have you spotted somebody reading one of your books out in the wild?
2: No, John. Most. these last two books, uh, I think people probably read those things at home at night with a cover pulled over their head. Uh, Only if you're scary. doing it right.
1: Pardon me? Only if you're doing it right. <laughs> uh, they're a little bit scary. So we know that uh, Clancy wrote similar themes in his stories, and then he had the FBI following him because they were convinced he had a Somebody was leaking information to him. So have you had the FBI call you up and be like, uh, John, do we need to talk? You know, the my uh, searches
2: online, I am amazed that the FBI hasn't been sitting on my doorstep. But
1: uh, <laughs> I, I had one uh, one cop that I met whose wife wrote um, more with, with gay nom- romance novel, shall we call it? And he told me jokingly when we met at a Starbucks that if you weren't at least on one government watch list as an author, you weren't doing it right. <laughs> so. so that
0: that is fair, I guess. Maybe I don't know. Um. So have, it,
1: it, in my defense, I wasn't really planning you have murder. Have any I
0: weird say, or fan interaction. what?
1: I, I, no, you go ahead. I was making a joke that you just walked all over it, so we'll move on.
0: That's fine. I walk all over you all the time. You seem to like it.
1: Oh, (laughs) I I got nothing.
0: (laughs) There's going to be somebody in our audience who's like a therapist who wonders what's wrong with you. (laughs) Okay. Well,
3: well, if they're wondering that now, they're not a regular listener anyway. This is
1: also true. Although we did have one guest come on that actually trained to be a counselor and then she decided people sucked. So she wrote uh, Paranormal Anyway. So we actually joked about having like a co-host therapy session as a joking episode, but that just might open us up to liability. So we decided we're going to have to pass.
0: That's yeah. because you don't want Jennifer being the therapist because, you know, and she's
1: like me, and she's a little bit scary. So we'll move on.
3: <laughs> which, which Jennifer?
1: Blackstream. You might know her.
3: She I don't. Writes, I don't know she writes, her.
1: She writes witches and vampires and stuff.
0: Yeah, because if you write a witch and a vampire, you get a secret club membership, so you all know each other. No, it's not like that.
1: They get a decoder ring. I heard about it. It's in their Ovaltine drinks. <laughs> so,
0: she's awesome, but it, but she's she can be a little intense. But I love her. She's a tiny person. You just added up the right magic water, and she'll shoot up to match her personality.
1: Wow. So you just called her a gnome? Okay. I hope she listens, and we'll move on.
0: I think I think this is
3: smaller than a gnome, but okay.
0: <laughs> i'll be fine all right well i'll
1: be fine while she's trying to recover from sticking her foot in the mouth i'm gonna ask the next question so uh <laughs> what is the funniest or weirdest interaction that you've had with with listeners or readers since you started writing hopefully it's family friendly and we'll go with you william you mean weirdest or funniest just you know entertaining uh, anecdote with a fan so there was this one time when
0: yvonne yelled at him no
3: Boy, that,
1: yeah, one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm one.
3: Uh, I, I tell you what, the funniest was was um. So I have a, I have a series uh, that's uh, my fantasy series, and one and it has a dragon on the cover, the first one, because you know, it's kind of required. You got to have a dragon on the cover. And um, I was at a festival with a bunch of families, and uh, this was out kind of in the country. And they would be walking by parents with the kids, and you could just tell the teenager kids they didn't really want to be there. You know, they're like, I don't know, I, you know, what are we doing? But they'd walk by, and um, ten families walked by, and I asked every one of them. I I, I watched, and and you know, I said, do y'all read? And, you know, do your kids read? Oh yeah, not really. No, they don't read. And ten out of the ten, I looked at my and and I looked at the girl. And I said, you really like fantasy books don't you and, th- and they were all teenagers and they're like yes and their parents you do <laughs> and and I would look at the guys and uh, say and you guys like you know y'all are easy you, y'all want to go play a, a video game oh yeah but uh, but the girls all of them really like fantasy and none of their parents knew it they love to read but their parents didn't know it because I don't know whether the girls didn't do it around their parents because of some disapproval of the subject matter or why. But it was just funny to me that I was able to tell that just from them looking at the books as they walked by, that they really liked it. And they really wanted to go look at them and all that. And uh, wound well, up selling a bunch of books to the parents who just looked at them and said, well, uh, you know, if you're going to read it, is this you know friendly enough for their age? I said, yeah, that's why. So um, I I don't know if that qualifies for what you asked, but um, that's the first thing that came to mind.
0: No, I think that qualifies great.
3: Uh, Yeah, it's just it's amazing the disconnect, uh, uh, especially in today's world where the parents aren't really sure what their kids are doing. And as long as they're being quiet about it, they may not care. Uh,
0: See, I'm a mom, but I'm I'm i maybe I'm just not trusting the quieter my child is, the more I want to know what they're doing.
3: Yeah, and help. Well, I, I'm not gonna ask that, but
0: but I have a boy, so.
3: Oh, oh well, that's. I've had both. Okay, and my girl, when I could hear her, that's when there was a problem. Oh no! Normally, oh. she was just. No.
0: no. No, even my mom will tell you that the quieter I was, probably the bigger trouble I was getting
3: into. Yeah, Well, um, anyway, it's amazing how many kids these days really do. I didn't mean to get off on this serious tangent. Uh, It's it's very out of character. Um, But it is amazing how many kids really do enjoy reading today. It's very encouraging. Well, I
0: think we have a lot of more selection of, or not, I don't want to say more selection. I want to say easier to find books and there's more access to books than ever before.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and that, that is great. I love seeing it as a, as a reader, as a person who curates stuff, as a podcaster, the,
1: yeah, so the for, increased
0: for... ability to ease of any mm-hmm. kind of content. So,
1: yeah, yep. I remember. For but the kind of
0: content also means I want to control my son.
1: This is fair, but we got to fix your Wi-Fi because it's freezing this. Um, but I remember for years as a kid, I didn't read and it wasn't because I didn't want to. It's just the books that I wanted to read, I'd already read and there wasn't a lot of content geared towards that. I think the one good thing that came out of like the whole Kindle revolution with the, with the independent movement is that books that were too niche for for New York to pick them up because, you know, their ROI is so steep because their overhead is so high are getting written but it also means you're drowned in content so sometimes it can be hard to find what you're looking for because there's just so much out there but oh what a problem to have
0: i never had that problem i just stole my mother's books
3: (laughs) (laughs) you know the strangest thing my parents and i didn't mean to usurp john's answer my parents were not readers they they didn't have anything and when uh, my mom died the only novel in her entire collection was a first edition of Casino Royale, and which is quite a valuable book, and it's the only novel she had, and she never read it. She didn't like James Bond, I, so uh, I don't know what that was apropos for, but maybe it had stunning cover art. I don't know. Um,
1: <coughs> so you never know. So what about you, John? Have you had any weird or funny interactions with fans since you started writing? Well,
2: this sowing chaos, uh, one of the, well, the main bad guy in this book is Kim Jong-un from North Korea, uh, accompanied by his nutty sister. And uh, I got into a long discussion with a reader about what his real motives were. And I'm thinking, neither one of us have any clue whatsoever what his real motives are. And he probably doesn't either. But anyway, that's fair. People have an opinion about literally everything. Uh,
1: and if they know
2: a little bit, all of a sudden they want to talk about it.
1: This is fair. All right. So, this is the part of the interview where we talk about everything you guys have written. So John, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of uh, what you've written?
2: Well, I've got a short list. Orphan hero, story about my great-grandfather that I mentioned earlier. Uh, my great aunt told me she wanted me to do three things in life. She wanted me to be a Baptist preacher, a Democrat congressman, and write a book about my great-grandfather. So I got one one. You still got time Um, to get the rest of it. Next book was uh, Voices of the Dead, a story about the yellow fever epidemic in 1878 that wiped out uh, 20,000 people in the south along the the Mississippi River bottoms. Uh, And one of the characters was, as Bill mentioned, a Creole nurse who came from uh, New Orleans to Memphis to volunteer. Well, the next book, our publisher said, you got to keep that character and write another book. So I uh, took her back to New Orleans, and she um, got in the midst of a murder mystery that she solved in 1880 New Orleans. And then books four and five, sewing Chaos, Unleashing Chaos, and six, uh, right on the last chapter, Bill, Good Uh, trafficking chaos. So
3: good. I don't want. I didn't want to pull out my whip.
1: Okay, that kind of deal.
2: Bill's got half a library. John.
3: John didn't tell you he's also got two other novels finished in my universe that can't come out till I get off my button. Right, a certain (laughs) book.
1: Fair. I I didn't want to mention (laughs) that. So, William, can you give us the highlights reel of everything you've written?
3: Uh, sure. Um, the Last Brigade Universe is my the series that uh, got me, uh, I, I don't know, published anyway. And uh, it has, it's turned out to be fairly popular. Um, and it, uh just a, a really brief, um, the U.S. has been putting people as they get out of the service who have skills that are not easily um, replicated, but... People who have no family or nowhere to go, uh, nothing really to do, they're recruiting them to go into cryogenic sleep against the day they might be needed again. And when they are finally woke awakened by accident, it's 50 years later and the U.S. is no more. Um, so they have to try and re- rebuild it. But there are warlords, uh, the cartels run Mexico, um, the Chinese they run, run it now. Uh, well, yeah, so it's that part. It's like John said, there's not a lot of fiction here other than the cryogenics. Uh, the Chinese are in California. Um, so that's the main series. Uh, I did uh, create um, Hit World, and that is now going into book. Um, the book I'm writing with Marisa is book six. We have an anthology turned in. Uh, I have written in the uh, Four Horsemen universe. I have another series called Time Wars uh, that uh, I'm going to be getting going next year. I just finished a novella in um, Jerry Pornell's Codominium Universe, oh. um, the one with Moten God's Eye and War World and all those. Um, so I, I, I write in quite a few different things. And then I have a fantasy series that um, uh, I... I was with one publisher, and it looks like it's now going to be with uh, another. And so, and that doesn't even begin to mention the nonfiction stuff.
1: All right. Well, then we will link to your Amazon page. So if people want to check it out, they can just click that buy all button. And for the life of me, I don't know why Amazon doesn't add that on an author page, because it'd be very helpful. Because there are just some authors that you're like, yep, I just want all of it. Um, yes.
3: Roger Zelazny.
1: That's right up there. All right, so the, those all sound fascinating, but today we're gonna to talk about Sewing Kados, a Last Brigade prequel series. Um, this is the first book in the collapse series, which is like, like we said, the prequel. So from here on out, either one of you can answer. Um, so it'll be directed at both of you collectively. Oh, oh, he's showing us the cover for a second. We'll get that, I've got it to share on the screen as well. But where did the premise for, this, uh, for the concept of the prequels come from? how did you guys come up with the ideas? Well, Bill asked me a question. How did the United States get
2: into this situation of having to put its soldiers to sleep and awaken them 50 years later? And he said, can you write material that will convince people that this is how America went from uh, the most uh, successful country in the world to a collapsed, completely collapsed country. And so that's what sowing chaos, followed by unleashing chaos, followed by trafficking chaos and trafficking chaos goes so down so far that young girls and young women are being used as collateral because money is worth nothing by this time. So uh, we've got two more books coming in that in that series before it gets to Bill's Lost Brigade Universe, or Last Brigade
1: Universe. OK. All right, so before we dig in, we want to talk about this lovely cover. So how, uh, what's the story of this piece of art? How did you guys uh, make this happen?
2: Uh, Bill. Bill gets all the credit for that. I don't know how in the world. Oh,
3: he um, he, here's, here's the story John's just forgotten. So he uh, came up with um, a cover uh, that I didn't like the cover he did, but I liked the concept. And uh, so I started looking around and started thinking, and... No, I'm trying to remember exactly. It, you know, These things go through so many iterations. But anyway, we, we decided that uh, uh, since a nuclear weapon is, is it goes off, um, that we needed to have it on the cover. And nothing represents America more than the Statue of Liberty. And on the first, this kind of ties into the first book in the Last Brigade series, because on that one, there's a picture there's a lot of images, but one of them is of the Statue of Liberty looking very similar to this one in collapse mode. It's falling over. So representative of what the series is about, I looked at it and I said, you know, this would be one reason that the Statue of Liberty would be falling on that cover. So there is a tie-in to the regular series. Okay. But yes, I, I designed that cover. Looks good, thank you.
1: All right, Doc, save us from ourselves.
0: <laughs> well, I think um, I think they've kind of given us the thirty second elevator pitch already.
1: So
3: it, it does sound like it. They're thorough. Yeah, with that. yeah. I'll only i only put it to you this way. From my standpoint, the way this happened was I looked at John Babb and I said, "Okay, this this man has he's a writer and he has experience." beyond which most people will ever dream of. He has expertise that would take someone else months, if not years, to research and get right. And since he's naive enough to want to write in my universe, I'm not about to tell him no. And so I said, hey, John, why don't you write these books? And he said, okay. And that's kind of how it happened.
0: Well, then you should take care of him. When we leave the naive sheep into into the pasture, we take care of them.
3: We do. John, John is a remarkable man. And uh, in all seriousness, uh, when he said, you know, he would like to do this, then I was – it would have just been the height of folly to say no. That's
1: a good point. So far, it sounds like you guys are doing amazing things. Oh, we try.
0: So – Which tropes, though, do you think that this book actually hit probably the best in the uh, breaking down the universe type?
3: John?
2: Well, it's a thriller. It is a a political thriller. Um, It's... I like to think that it's a little bit different from other books of this genre because it is not just one, not just one event, not just one catastrophe, it's about 40. But they're, they are such that they just make society almost overwhelmingly unbearable.
3: Okay. Yeah, the tropes the tropes I'm I'm trying to think of. It one thing about the book is it's pretty relentless in um in it in, and it's funny because it's relentless and yet John is not a relentless type of writer. John is a very um matter of fact type of writer, very different than than me in style, and yet he's presenting just um Attack after attack and, and all things that, you know, he trained to counter. So this is all coming straight out of his experience or most of it anyway. And uh, so it, it it's hitting all those tropes of um, relentless attacks and trying to prevent the next one in a way that I'm not sure has been done very often. And I'm not sure that there's very many people that could have done it. Because you you don't replicate the experiences he's got easily.
0: No, it takes a very specific kind of background for that. So, um, which I think is really fascinating and really awesome that he decided to write this and um, book. So. Normally, ask about genres and subgenres. Would this hit the military sci-fi genre? It's definitely. It seems like urban sci-fi, but
3: it it's sci-fi in that it. When I wrote um, the Last Brigade, it it would be what I would call borderline sci-fi. Okay, because it does have cryogenics and it does have take place in the future. So in that regard, it's science fiction. But the technology that's in it is all uh current it, yeah. it it's maybe inflated a little um I have a super Apache called a Comanche gunship uh and things like that but it's all technology that could exist. Yeah,
0: which is really one of those hallmarks of urban sci-fi is that it's stuff very close to plausible and and very not too far removed from our current tech. Most of it's similar and overlapping. Exactly. So
3: and and I would say it fits in sci-fi in that it ties into that series. Um, And then it it also ties into, because the last brigade universe, not, not these books, but has also has a fantasy element. There are books in the series that are straight out fantasy, but they're marked as fantastic tales in the universe. Okay. Who don't like that kind of stuff.
0: So, uh, moving on kind of to the story itself, you've told us a bit about what happens overall in the arc of the story, but can you tell us a bit about the main character What and what makes them special and unique?
2: Well, the main heroic character is the nurse that I spoke of. She is in this, in this book, she is a CIA agent who has a, a mastery of six languages. She's a nurse, and so she's able to work in international environments as that nurse, undercover, uh, and come up with a whole lot of information. Uh, the bad guys are the ones you read about in the newspaper every day. Kim Jong-un, uh, Putin, uh, President Z. Uh, some of our own politicians. Um, an example of a attack mode that wasn't possible up until just a few years ago was a laser sighted mortar. Mortars were not really all that effective at a long range, uh, as long as you weren't required to hit a specific target or within 15 feet say of a a specific target but when you add a laser sight to it somebody in the crowd that can have a laser sight and spot i won't say what the event was but spot a specific target and fire that laser from up to six miles i mean that mortar from up to six miles away then all of a sudden you got a really deadly and super dangerous weapon that just cannot be defended. And it did its work.
1: Wow. That's fun. So
0: can you tell us a bit about the second, any of your secondary characters that you have in it? I'm sorry. Can you tell us some about the secondary characters in the series? Is there one you want to tell us about? Does super nurse have a sidekick, which I totally think it's awesome using a nurse because I was a medic and so many people ignore the nurses and the medics in the room and say stuff without, they just forget that we're there.
2: Now four of my books, nurses are the heroes. Uh, I worked with some fantastic nurses, including the one that's the featured hero in this, in this series, Uh, her sidekick is a colonel uh, who's on assignment to Homeland Security. And they have sort of a romantic relationship gradually building over the course of the book. But he's a a secondary, but he seems to be around quite a bit. But she's the one that took on most of the danger in this early part of the book through her international diploma.
1: Okay. Doc, since he answered the question about the bad guys, you get to ask your favorite question about the dark alley.
0: Oh, wait, are we doing that one now?
1: Yeah, he he answered the bad guy question already, so no point in having him say it again.
0: So my favorite question, if your characters knew who you were and knew you were responsible for all the craziness that happened to them and they found you in a dark alley, how would you fare?
2: Hmm. Well, I, I, f- could out- I could outrun Kim Jong-un. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't fare well with my bad guys, no.
3: What about what about you, William? If my bad guys caught up with me in a dark alley, how would I fare?
0: Well, it doesn't have to be the bad guys. It's just how would your characters react if they knew who you were?
3: Most people I answer with their
1: their protagonists instead of the antagonists. Like you know, if the if the good guys who they tortured met them in a dark alley, but you can answer <laughs> bad guys too. That's a unique twist. I if- like where your mind
3: is going. If my protagonists met me, uh, I would probably be left a bloody lump. But if my antagonists met me, they'd probably buy me a beer. (laughs) You let them do better than they did in real life? Uh, I, I, I don't believe that bad guys who are just universally awful are particularly interesting. I think I think you need to be sympathetic toward the bad guys, at least insofar as you try to understand their motivation. It may be horrible, but to them, it's not horrible. And so uh, they get they typically get a more sympathetic reading with me and then they come out of it looking even worse because of it. But, yeah, I think they'd look at me, go, you know. Come on, man, Let's, I'll buy you a beer. I may knife you after we get done, but, you know, I'll, I'll buy you a beer first.
0: Well, John, how do you think your nurse would respond if she knew who you that you were responsible for all the craziness and danger she gets put in?
2: Uh, knowing her, she would eat it up. <laughs> she's, she's just Sorry. She's just that tough
0: since this may, since this character was based off of a nurse you knew are you going to tell her and give her a copy of the book
2: oh yeah okay yeah she's one of my better readers
0: oh cool (laughs) um jr
1: it would help if I didn't do the boomer thing and leave it muted. Uh, so finally, <laughs> you've told us a little bit about the Last Brigade universe, but so we want to narrow this down specifically about this, this, the universe as it happens during the Collapse series. So what uh, what can you tell us about the world as it stands when you're writing the, the prequels without giving any, way, any spoilers, obviously?
2: Well, the entire world is going to be affected if, if America collapses everything is so interconnected now economy wise that uh if the dollar fails then the ruble fails the the pound sterling fails everything is interconnected if uh the bad guys are interfering with the oil markets uh it's just inevitable that if something this dramatic happened to America the whole world would uh, would suffer. Okay. Yeah. And they're going to try and take advantage of it too. But at the same time, there's not going to be enough resources left to go around. So a majority of the population are going to die.
1: I have heard the theory posited that if something happened that catastrophic, there would be no recovering because all of the easily accessible resources have already been claimed. And without the tech, you can't get the stuff like fracking doesn't happen without modern tech. I don't, I, I don't know how true that is because I've heard some of those places they said the resources were depleted have refilled. Um, and I am not a geologist or an environmental scientist, but it's definitely an interesting question to, to think about.
0: Nobody has ever mistaken you for a scientist, Jr.
1: I can wave my hands with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the
3: the overall and overarching um, thing about it is is that if something catastrophic happens to the U.S., which you know this is about the collapse of the U.S., so it does. Um, one of the first things it's going to go that's is money. What value does money have if Um, things aren't being shipped anymore and everything is so balanced on a knife edge like John said and it's so interconnected that the money we use only represents an idea in and of itself it has no value Um, and so you you would quickly reach a point where um, things become more valuable than What a piece of paper that represents what we consider wealth. And um, if that rippled across the entire world, um, it's going to be pretty dire consequences.
1: Okay.
2: So your daily subsistence concerns you don't have any fuel. You're trying to find enough food for your family. If you've got a gun, if you've got uh any anything worth possessing if you've got a pretty wife if you've got a pretty daughter all those things have to be defended in this kind of a world because they're worth something
1: to other people
3: yeah they have an intrinsic value
1: yeah Okay. There's an interesting, and if I can find it, I'll link it in the, um, the YouTube, uh, I'll link it in the comments on YouTube and on the podcast dear listener, but there's actually a, a YouTube channel that breaks down some of the science behind this kind of stuff. Like uh, if you knew what you were doing, how long could you live in a, and survive off the food in a grocery store, for instance, and everyone thinks, well, everything will spoil, but uh, with enough salt, if you knew everything was going bad, you could salt that meat and preserve all of that. There'd be enough in the grocery store. You could plant some of the stuff in the store, Um, So it's it's an interesting thing to to think about. Um, Although I just hole up in the Walmart because they got books and supplies. Um, So, you know, if I'm going to write out the apocalypse, you know, I can read to the end. Um, So sewing Chaos is clearly part of the series. We know because you told us so and it says so on the Amazons. There are currently (laughs) two books out in the series, but you've mentioned more. So is their story done? Like, what do you see coming from these characters in this series?
2: Uh, some of the same characters follow through the entire series. Um, It gets worse. I can tell you that it gets worse until Bill's uh, cryogenic army wakes up and begins to fight back.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, the, the world goes away and this is the details of how that happened and uh the prequels were written basically on demand because people wanted to know what happened so this is that history
1: okay so once you link up on the timeline with the the last brigade series do you think you're gonna have overlap and let the characters interact or is it that ship sailed it's already too late
3: Well, they actually will. John's already finished a book in which um, they do more or less make contact. And there are other stories um, in the anthologies. The anthologies uh, have stories that occur throughout. They don't just occur in this series and then in the uh, 50 years from now in the last Brigade series. Uh, These are occurring throughout that in-between period, too. And um, in one of those stories that's going to be coming out uh, soon, they are actually going to touch base with a portion of the, um, the 7th Cavalry Reg, uh, Brigade, which is in the last brigade universe, not the regiment, the brigade. Um, so, yeah, it, it's all going to eventually be completely interconnected. Okay. Um, in right. fact, just, just to, one more thing. There is a foreign anthology coming uh, next year, and in uh, a number of the writers uh, actually are native to those countries. Um, the first story is already turned in from Argentina, and it's about what happens in those countries when things happen in the Last Brigade universe. Wow! How did you
1: finagle that one?
3: Um because people kept asking me you know what's going on over in europe and and i knew the generalities but what i really wanted to do was find authors if i could from who were native to that area and i wasn't able to do that for all of them but i wanted to find out okay i know the general pattern but tell me what it would have been like to live in france you know when russia attacks western europe for example and so there's a, uh, a French author named Antoine Guillard. Uh, there's uh, what happens in uh, England. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Tim Taylor, Tim C. Taylor. I do. Uh, okay. Well, Tim's right.
1: My first uh, publishing contract.
3: Oh, awesome. Well, Tim is doing uh, the story for England. Okay. And um, there's uh, Jan and I, he would kill me because I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But... Um, I think it's Kotuch or something like that in uh, the Czech Republic. And uh, he's a he's a military SF author who lives there. He's doing that. So we're going to be get, getting perspectives from all over the world. Uh, so that it's not just um, a um, U.S. centric series. So how did you
1: meet those authors or did they come to you?
3: I reached out to them. Um, I'm a, as you can probably tell, I have a, I'm not exactly, um, afraid. I am. It's true. It's a real problem. I know. And, uh, I just, uh, I I just ask people because, um, I I really am a pretty nice guy. I don't, I don't usually bite. And, uh, uh, I just asked them and they, I think this the first anthology was extremely successful, and so I, and for anthologies that's not always the norm, and so I think that had something to do with it too that uh, it would be worth spending your time doing.
1: All right, Doc. Next set is yours.
0: Yeehee Sorry, seemed appropriate.
3: Uh, back, by
0: the way, yes. So, other than the cryogenics, is there any other tech that you guys developed for uh, destroying the world?
2: Uh, developed, no. Uh, but
1: but everything to...
2: everything is accurate. For example, in this second book, "Unleashing Chaos," part of the story has to do with. Um, spreading uh, smallpox and Marburg virus. Now, there are only two places in the world where those two items are stored. Yes. At the CDC yes. and at Vector in Russia. So I won't tell you how that happened, but I had a good friend at CDC who um, gave me an up to date. Uh, story about the drugs that were being used in case there was a smallpox outbreak or in case there was a Marburg outbreak because they're both so deadly they can't treat uh, or they can't uh, test them on people they can only test them on macaque monkeys and then extrapolate that and hope that they will also be successful on people. So they found their way into the CDC's drug stockpile in case those d- diseases are spread. So those three drugs were added in June of this year. That's how up to date this stuff has to be.
3: Um, as far as the last brigade books and themselves, the tech doesn't exist. Uh, you know, big helicopter, that's that's low hanging fruit. but there are some things that DARPA has been working on that they may not have perfected, but, but they're definitely working on them that I then said, okay, they perfected them and they did this with them. Uh, for example, in the first book, um, DARPA has been working on homing bullets. And, um, so I had them perfect a, a very small supply, but of homing, uh, 120 millimeter rounds for an m1 abrams mm-hmm. and uh but there's other things that do exist that most people don't know exist for example uh, that the m1 has canister shot mm-hmm. uh just like in the civil war uh you know you fire a cannon and you've got this canister shot for anti-infantry and suppression purposes um I just
0: so to
3: take a and thank a handful of people huh
0: Oh, no, no, he's got, like, I think he was, there's okay. a playback on his side. Ignore yeah. there. Okay. Everybody there. Yeah, you
1: know, my, my computer doesn't like me. Sometimes it's it's starting to overheat, but it's okay. It'll survive the podcast, <laughs> and that's all we really need.
3: Okay. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I, it's not really science fiction-y, but it is um, maybe taking existing tech beyond where it is today. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that stretch your, uh, stretch credulity.
0: So... Uh, is there anything that is on that stretch that you, that you would want to use on a daily basis now?
3: Uh, yes. I'd love to be able to, uh, shoot a 50 caliber desert Eagle, uh, without breaking my wrist. (laughs) But, um, or, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'd love to have homing bullets, but um, uh, yeah. not that I can think of, other than okay. just it would be fun to blow stuff up.
0: That counts?
3: Oh, okay. Well, then in that case, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You know, just <laughs> give, give, me, give me a target and buy me the ammo and, you know, let me let me have at it.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, since it doesn't sound like you have aliens, we're going to move to the wrap-up page. And uh, This one went a little bit long, so we appreciate you bearing with us, dear listener. Uh, As we're winding down, was there anything about the Sewing Chaos um, book or the um, Chaos series in general that that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us before we wrap up? John or or William?
3: I'll let John start.
1: You know, uh, I
2: think we've covered just about everything that i want to tell without somebody buying the book out of curiosity i don't want to solve all the questions
3: i I'll, I'll tell you this much um the problems the only feedback we've gotten that was not 100 percent positive was that the book scared people to death and because it is extremely realistic and possible uh you know this isn't that's that's the worst part about this is that it it's all uh, intensely possible, um, and so if you if you really want to enjoy reading, you know, very well written novels that also deal with um, you know real life, ripped out of the headlines kind of stuff. I I think these would be them.
1: Okay. Well, this is the part of the interview, dear listener. We'll remind you that uh, your reviews matter. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And life is too short to read bad ones. So do your part. Uh, And with that said, uh, John, how can listeners find you? And as usual, it'll be linked in the show notes. Um, JohnBabAuthor.com
2: my website, that's the easiest way.
1: All right. We'll, we'll link to that and in uh, his Amazon page. And since they don't um, have a buy all button yet, you're going to have to do some clicking, but he would like you to buy them. Um, all right, William, how can listeners find you?
3: If you want to keep up with writing tips and uh, uh, new content before it's released, things like that, uh, you can follow me on Patreon at patreon.com William Allen Webb. Um, I'm on Facebook at, uh, the worlds of William Allen Webb. is the name of the page. Uh, and you can find me on, um, Twitter at join the brigade one. And you can find me, uh, um, on Amazon, of course. And that's probably about it. I don't think that they put me in the phone book anymore. So that's probably all we've got. I don't think they print the phone book anymore. Um, well, that's a good point. Yeah.
1: All right. And you can find us. Let me start that again because I had to close the door. So Elvis didn't go attack the sleeping child. Uh, all right. So you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters, dash and dash blades Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Blasters and at gmail.com. We promise we will make Doc answer those emails and send you all the love through the uh, digital. No, she's shaking her head. All right. Uh, we have the Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, which is Facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again blasters and blades podcast over there on the Facebooks. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. Uh, you can also support the podcast over on anchor. FM backslash blasters, tack and tack blades. Make sure that uh, when you do, again, you tell them it's for the podcast and we will keep doc Saska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. <laughs>
0: Never surrender.
1: And her cup is empty, so people <laughs> get on the ball. All right, Doc, bring it home.
0: Thank you for calling. Damn, yeah, you threw me off.
1: I would think the twelfth booth threw y'all. This the best yeah. part of the
0: show. Anyways, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for the absentee Nick Garber, Jr. Handley. I'm Suska. This was a Blasters and blade podcast. well uh we'll be back next week, same time, same place indulging our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes picking on jr and seeing what crazy drink i will be drinking next oh plus all things that go boom and pineapple on pizza
1: pineapple on pizza i couldn't let that slide and if you have a yes. drink recommend recommendations, pineapple
0: on pizza is glorious
1: you're a heathen if you have drink recommendations for seska as we try to get her snookered to uh to podcast intoxicated just uh send the recipes and we might even get her to try it on air this could be that kind of show. I don't know. I don't know if her liver's that strong. We will see. But in the meantime, pineapple does not belong on pizza. Let's see yes, if I can. It